<sighs> Do we have to start with like an introduction kind of thing? I don't like, know. Are we like introducing ourselves or? I don't know. Do we have to? I don't think so. No, because in the show notes, I'm always going to be like, Yeah. Yan and Emily do this, you know? I wanted to do like a podcast about uh, like erotic thrillers from the late 80s and early 90s. I was going to say that's when the genre like first became popular, but I think that's like the only time the genre was really popular. I can't really think of any like sort of recent movies that fit that bill. Nothing really popular anyhow. I can't really, I'm sure there's still like movies that are like straight to DVD or like if that's even a thing anymore, like straight to the movie network or whatever. Yeah. But like these movies like in the late 80s and early 90s that we're going to talk about, like some of them were like huge blockbuster hits. Yeah, they were the greatest, man. So when you told me I want to do erotic thrillers from the 80s and 90s, I was like, whole hog let's double down on this i'm so on board what was the first movie that came to mind when i said erotic thrillers i think it was probably fatal attraction or maybe um oh what's the basic instinct with sharon stone but like fatal attraction was definitely up there because i remember it so clearly from my childhood like i I don't know i guess i watched a lot of shit that i probably shouldn't have been watching as a kid yeah but like i saw these movies when they came out and uh i don't know i must have been like I don't know. I must have been 10 or less. I don't don't know. I I was just, I don't know, I guess super nostalgic in a weird way. Like, oh, my childhood, the erotic thrillers. Excellent. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I was very, very into it. And I was like, let's just do this. I think think we're going to have a lot of fun diving into it. Although I have to say some of the movies were were better than, than others. Yeah, well... Yeah, more on that later. Should we talk about the like? Should we list the movies that we're going to talk about right now? Or yeah, like what what did you watch uh, in preparation? I started thinking about this even before we had kind of settled on on the podcast idea because I saw Single White Female somewhat recently. Oh right! And then both um, Nine and a Half Weeks and Fatal Attraction were on uh, on TV, um, and I so I DVR'd them both, and then I watched them. Uh, you st- recently you still have tv i know i'm i'm one of a, those weird people who has like cable tv and i subscribe to like the movie network which is like i don't know canada's equivalent of like whatever channel they have in the states where they show like movies like uninterrupted by commercials and yeah. i basically just like i just dvr the shit out of it and i have like my dvr is always like 70 to 80 percent full and so I have like this crazy list of stuff that I have to watch because otherwise I have to just You're like, gonna lose stuff. it. Yeah. yeah. And that's basically it. And I never like that's the only way that I watch movies now. That's crazy. Well, it's similar to me. I mean, I, I like totally legally download movies and then don't have space enough on my computer and then wipe them and have to download them again. Kind of, kind of like you. But no, I mean, like that's cool. I think it's cool. You still have TV. I really like the channel that I have that kind of shows like these older movies because it's kind of like movies that I would never really think to revisit. And then I'm sort of like, oh yeah, I vaguely remember this from when I was like 12 years old or something. And then I watched it again and it's like, it's like, I don't know. I guess I'm just at an age where I'm like kind of like fascinated by 
the impression these movies made on me when I was a kid, but then like revisiting them them now and kind of like reevaluating them and seeing like what is actually going on in these movies like parts that I didn't quite understand or didn't pick up on it's like it's pretty interesting yeah I I know all about that experience I totally experienced that during you know preparation for this episode um one one last thing I well before I get into what I saw but um I it's funny you brought up a single white female how you'd seen it recently because I remember I was looking for a roommate oh yeah we, we saw each other on the bus and uh, I brought up, you know, oh, I'm, you know, roommate search is kind of hard. And the first thing you said was like, oh, I saw a single white female recently. And I was like, thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Yan. That's <laughs> very helpful, psychotic roommate story. That's really nice. Because you said that, I actually revisited single white female as well. It's something that I also saw as a kid. And it really left an impression on me. Like, I think it was probably one of those things that we rented and my sister and I watched it the evening and then woke up in the morning and, like, watched it again. So, wow. like, a nice deep kind of... We, we would always do this, though. Mm-hmm. I left a deep mark, especially in the, like, aesthetic and the fashion in the movie. But I didn't remember, like, much of the story except that there's like the crazy lady then i watched uh a, a movie that i i probably i i took it on myself as you told me i put this on myself i knew i shouldn't have done it but i watched a nicholas cage movie from 1991 uh which ended up getting released straight to video in the u.s called Zandalay. It might be kind of interesting to sort of talk about why you were attracted to this movie because it's such an obviously terrible movie. Like just <laughs> just from looking at like when you told me about it and like we looked at the trailer like it was so obviously the worst movie of all time. <laughs> and you were like, "I think I'm going to watch this." And I was like <laughs> You're like, do you want to watch it with me? And I was like, no. (laughs) Why did I want to see this movie? Well, if you didn't know this about me already, I'm going to teach you something. I like to watch bad movies. I find they're funny. Um, But, you know, it's a special art. You got to watch a lot of kind of just bad, bad movies, you know, to be able to sift through the bad, bad and find the good, bad or the hilariously bad. I would rank this as pretty much just a bad, bad movie. Although there is one kind of must-see moment in this film. So Zandalay, I was tricked. I thought we were going to do a podcast about erotic thrillers. And instead, this was just like an erotic movie there was nothing really thrilling about it like even even you saw the trailer with me and they make it look like there's some sort of like sexual danger or whatever or like i thought it was gonna be a woman falls in love with like a criminal for like wild passion but then he's dangerous like no no there's no thrills there's no danger it's just people being naked with no motivations so I'll, i'll bring you through kind of if i may i'll bring you through the plot of zandalay so we start with this zandalay lady uh, she's like jogging around. Actually, no. It starts out she's all fun loving. She's like prancing around, dancing naked in her house while her husband like gets ready for something, puts on a shirt, and is like all boring. And then he goes to work or something, and she likes to jog. And then for no reason, she's jogging next to the railroad tracks, and a train is approaching, and she darts across the tracks in front of the train. To be like, oh, look, Zandalay loves danger. Then you learn a little bit more about her relationship. Like, her husband is a poet, but he's taken over his father's business or something. So he's, like, kind of more of a businessman now. So he's not writing a lot of poetry. And, like, she's upset because they don't have as much sex. 
And then her husband goes to a party at a bar and he runs into like an old friend, Nicolas Cage. And then, I don't know, he rekindles his friendship with the poet husband. So then he comes to the house to paint the guy's portrait and Nicolas Cage meets Zandelay and he says like totally inappropriate things to her. Like they're reminiscing about their youth, the poet and, and Johnny, the painter. And like Johnny's just like talking about vaginas. Like he has this one line where like he's like, I got all the girls. And he says something like big. OK, I quote, when that big red snatch is coming right up to your face like a freight train. And you're like, what? Is that a callback to the train from but, earlier in the movie? Probably, but like, this is supposed to be like dangerous, sexy talk, and I'm just like, ew, that's fucking also, gross. Also, isn't it kind of weird to use a train as a metaphor for, for a, a vagina? vagina? That's like, like way that's more opposite. phallic. <laughs> yeah. And then next time she sees the Johnny guy, he tries to kiss her, and she's like, get lost. But then eventually, like, she sees him in the street. And he's, like, very rude, but she, like, makes out with him in an alley and then goes into his studio. And then he gets her naked and, like, paints all over her body with paint. But it's, like, supposed to be erotic, but it's just really awkward and shitty. Anyway, fast forward. She tries to rekindle with her husband. And, like, they decide to take this trip to the bayou. But then they get there and they're having so much fun. And she finally, they finally have sex and it's great. And she's also gross and creepy and says weird things, like... She finishes having sex with her husband, and then she says to him, quote, See, all our parts work. Like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? I'm telling you, the dialogue is <clears throat> insane. Oh, yeah, and at some other point, Nicolas Cage wants her to have sex with him, and he says, Take me, take my dumb coon-ass prick inside of you with your husband in the next room. Uh, wow. Uh, and some other point, he, like, grabs her crotch, and like because she's talking about how her husband was a poet and he grabs her crotch and he's like what about this isn't this poetry and i was just like i'm gonna fucking barf all over everything at this moment it's the worst thing i've ever heard and another time when he's like i want you he says i want to shake you naked and eat you alive zandalay like wow. this dialogue is fucking disturbing okay this <clears throat> was more disturbing than fatal attraction so there's this like internet famous scene where Nicolas Cage like covers his body in paint in a total rage fit. It looks like totally ad-libbed. And I yeah. was like, yes, this movie at least has that. And it was hilarious. Is there anything kind of like arousing about this movie or is it just gross? Because it sounds like it's just gross. To me, it was gross. Okay. And I felt like it was such a, a shallow understanding of like what desire is, which is like just because it's forbidden doesn't make it actually hot. Like, yeah, you can't just go fuck your husband's buddy from school but like also if he's gross and is Nicolas Cage with a mullet and says awful things like like big red <laughs> snatch and like is this poetry when he grabs her crotch like y you wouldn't want to alright well I guess uh, you watched it so that uh, none of us would have to yeah the world no and, longer uh, has to yeah thank you thank you for that uh, sacrifice and I would say like I thought that watching single white female was going to be the, the bad experience. Right. Okay. So let's get into that because like you were actually texting me while you were watching these movies and like you were like, <laughs> you were like, ah, oh, single white female, such a bad movie. I'm going to watch Sandalay now. 
<laughs> and then it's like, yeah, how good does single white female seem now in retrospect? It's like a masterpiece. No, it's still really, really garbage. I don't think it's garbage. I think I think single white female is a pretty good movie. I I really like Jennifer Jason Lee in it. I like her. You know what my big problem with this movie is? <clears throat> uh, Bridget Fonda. She's no good. Okay, she's not terrible. Like, but she's the director not, must have worked hard. Like, she's not strong. Um, yeah. Okay, so I don't know. Why don't you take me through kind of your understanding of this movie, like how you felt rewatching it, and maybe like compared to your original viewing of it. It's not like as good as I remembered it because I remembered it as like a classic. I I did too, (laughs) and I think this is partly like my bad review. Is it's all about like the expectations were way too high. Yeah, but like the thing that I remembered the most about it is like kind of the end of it I guess and like everything from the moment where like like the moment where she cuts like cause okay the let's, haircut yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's let's kind of frame it okay let's so talk about for like Shelley, the Shelley who's born in 1991 oh, who's right. never seen a movie <laughs> she in was born in 1999 last time okay We've what just... what okay 1999 that makes a lot of sense right uh, she's never seen this movie she oh. doesn't know so Single White Female is a 1992 film uh, I don't know if it's quite an erotic thriller, but there are definitely elements of eroticism in it. So I'll put it definitely. in there. Uh, and, and it's a thriller. Uh, it's <clears throat> about a woman who lives a horror story after uh, breaking up with her boyfriend and then finding a roommate to share her apartment with her, her rent-controlled apartment, amazing apartment in New York, and uh, who she thinks is going to be a perfect roommate turns out to be a complete nightmare. Bridget Fonda is the the main good girl you like. Jennifer Jason Lee plays the villain, and then there's you know so like a small supporting cast. There's this whole development of like let's dive into kind of like who this villain is, right? Right. The reason she's a villain or whatever is because she becomes she quickly it's it becomes obvious that she's like obsessed with this character. Allie. With the other woman. Yeah. I think her name is Allie, Allie, like Allison, whatever. So the Bridget Fonda character. Like she and it's like at first she just seems like really nice, you know, she's like she's, simple small town girl. Maybe she's a bit not jealous, but like looks up to this yeah, Allie. I wouldn't character. say yeah, I wouldn't say jealous because she's kind of like in admiration. She's kind of yeah. in awe of her because yeah. like Bridget Fonda is like, you know, she's like fashionable. She wears like really like trendy clothes. She, and she has, has her like own little cool so- software business, which is like 1992. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. She's, she's like, like helping people with their e-coms. And it's set in New York. And like, you know, so she's kind of she's like this great apartment. She also has like this fiance who like she's on the outs with. But like things are going pretty great except for the shitty fiance. She's she's definitely a figure of admiration for this heady character. Yeah, but then like, and it, and at first it's kind of like endearing, like you know, she's kind of like, she's obviously someone who, like, she's a little bit more kind of uh, sheltered or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, and like, you kind of feel wholesome. like, yeah, and you feel kind of like you feel really sympathetic towards her at the beginning. She's kind of sweet, you know, in a way, and then but then it kind of gets a little bit creepy as she sort of like develops more and more of this kind of obsession, and. Okay, because if we're going to look at this as an erotic thriller or whatever, like there's obviously mm-hmm. some kind of sexual tension between these two characters in a way. Yeah, between the two um, women for sure. And then there's also like a weird little love triangle. Like not love triangle, but there's like a tension that develops between 
uh, the the fiance character right. and um, because what happens is that like the Jennifer Jason Lee character yeah. when when uh, when Bridget Fonda sort of rekindles her relationship with her fiance Jennifer Jason Lee quickly sees that as a threat because like all of a sudden like this perfect situation where she's living with this other you know single girl that she's kind of maybe not in love with but, but like she definitely can command in- all of her time she's extremely obsessive to the point where you don't really realize if she wants to possess her or if she wants to be her or like a mix of both yeah you know and i think that's like i mean i think that's like a really interesting that makes for an interesting villain to me and i i don't think like it had it wasn't something that i had that I think I had seen before, like at the time when I saw it, like, it was like I think every... in 1992 we didn't see such complex, interesting female villains. Yeah, we don't really know if she's like in love with her or she wants to be her, and I think that's the point where it really kind of tips into like obsessive behavior. Is that at one point Jennifer Jason Lee is like trying to like console the Bridget Fonda character for whatever reason, like something happened yeah. with her fiance her or something. Fiance, it's and she's just like, tough time. Oh no, let's no, no, go. no! What happened was Bridget Fonda's character almost got raped by her only client, who's oh. manipulating her. This creepy, creepy man played by Steven Tobolowski. Yeah. So anyway, she almost gets raped by her boss and escapes by tricking him. Like, oh, I'm going to give you a blowjob. No, I need you in the nuts instead. And runs away. Like, literally has to physically run away from rape. And anyway, this the heady character, Jennifer Jason Lee, is comforting her. And she takes her to a salon and says, don't worry, you're going to like feel better about this, right? Right. So they go to a salon. And then she comes out and she's basically gotten a haircut that looks exactly like the one that Bridget Fonda has. Yeah, and so this haircut's very iconic anyway. Yeah. Like, sorry to cut you off, but, like, this, like, short, like, kind of, like, rust red little, like, pixie bob that that mm-hmm. they have in this movie is very iconic of this movie. It's, like, what I remember from the film. Yeah. It's not just, like, totally, oh, some blonde totally. haircut. It's, like, a very unique and it was, I guess, very cutting edge and cool in the 90s, too. It was, like, yeah. super cool haircut. Yeah. Little red short haircut. And anyway, Hetty gets it. And, like, the other one is, like, what? Like, what, what the, the fuck? the fuck is yeah. this? Although, I would say, as a viewer, that's the turning point for, like, Ali when Ali realizes Hetty's crazy a bit. But I think the turning point for the viewer is with the dog. Uh, an earlier part in the film where we, the first time we see Hetty lie about something really important, she, um... She brings home a puppy that she's actually bought. We see the receipt from the pet store and she lies to Ali and says that they were giving them away and she felt bad. And uh, later when Ali kind of like decides to patch things up with her uh, with, with her fiance and doesn't come home for like an evening or, or a day or two, um, Hetty like kind of descends into this depression. There's this moment where she's watching TV eating ice cream out of the carton and the dog approaches and she kicks it away like really callously and says not for dogs yeah you definitely know that there's something like kind of disturbed like she she's not right like from from earlier because she has these kind of like like she's overreacts to things she gets like very moody and like the moment that something doesn't quite work the way that she wants it to she like goes into this kind of like bipolar thing where she like goes like she she becomes very depressed and kind of like 
reclusive and uh yeah kicks the dog or whatever and but she's yeah. like a liar she erases the messages from the boyfriend to like kind of sabotage yeah. the relationship and anyway later in the film spoilers there's a scene where to uh like get revenge over something like she's not included or she's upset with Hetty or whatever the boyfriend she uh basically like kills the dog you don't see it happen but the dog is like you know, it falls out the window and it's obvious that Hetty's like tampered with the window and has kind of either let it happen or has, has made it happen. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, long story short, Hetty descends into madness. Uh, there's this weird scene where she, she goes to the boyfriend's house and oh, like okay. kind yeah. of rapes him. Yeah, she goes to like she that was actually like it's such a weird scene cuz I guess that's like in a way the most erotic scene of the movie and well, it's, it's so kind of like, gross. Well, it's most like typically, well, I mean, it's not graphic. There's nothing really graphic in this movie. Like there's a scene where you see like the Bridget Fonda character like watches her masturbate from like from far the, from far away yeah. and it's kind of like and there's like a lot of voyeurism and like the audio equivalent of voyeurism, right? They like yeah. live in this apartment building where everyone hears everything. Right. And then this so this scene that we're talking about, like she goes to the Hetty, the villain character. Yeah. She goes to the the her roommate's boy boyfriend's place and she, at this point she has the same haircut. She like she borrows she's the, wearing jacket. the jacket. Like her uh, her roommate's coat, so like she shows up and the guy the is guy's asleep. already asleep. She like climbs into bed with him. Yeah, and basically starts giving him a blowjob while he's like half asleep. And then he figures out like halfway through it, like as he's kind of like becoming awake, like that it's not his fiance. It's actually the, her roommate. And he's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" But then whatever. He's like already immobilized, and like she forces him. And they finish. And then, you know, like, she tries to snuggle up with him and he just, like, looks away at her. Like, looks away from her in disgust. And, like, I actually feel bad for the the uh, character. It felt like, like, he felt used and dirty. Yeah, he did. And, but there's, I think, like, what's kind of disturbing about this scene for me is that, like, it's not, it's not, like, arousing exactly, but it, there's just something about it. Like, it feels very raw. Like, it feels very kind of real in a weird way like it's like how know. that shit would go down yeah if like a woman raped a straight man this is what would happen but anyway the whole thing is like this character this sam character played by steven weber um he the whole reason that he and ali broke up in the first place is like he was unfaithful so now hetty's got this against him like see you'll never change i told her and then they have this whole argument about who cares more about ali and you know he tells her how sick she is and like how he's been tricked like you come in here you have the same hair you're wearing her perfume like what have you done like you're twisted and she's trying to argue like no i really care about her in ways that you don't and mm-hmm. when she was almost raped she came to me not to you and they have this whole argument and um it escalates and Hetty, as a callback to an earlier scene when she was shopping with the very fashionable Allie, takes off her pointy stiletto high heel and slams the heel deep into his eye cavity and murders him with the stiletto high heel in the brain. <laughs> yeah. That's how that's how Sam goes in this movie, folks. Right. And then basically it's like murder for the rest of the, the movie, I guess, at this point. It turns into kind of like, you know, just a thriller. Um... I mean, chasing around the apartment building, like tying up the fucking Ali character. She uses her wits to get free. In the end, it's Graham that saves her, isn't it? 
I don't think any of these details really matter. I mean, I think like for me, this is still kind of an iconic movie from like the early '90s. It's pretty stylized. Like, I like the look of like you know all those like New York apartments oh, and the fashion. Yes. Let's talk about the fashion. The you fashion's said. amazing. Okay, well, first of all, the haircut's great. Yeah. Then it's very much this period of the '90s where like rust and burgundy were super in. Yeah. So it's like these like burgundy and rust like lipstick hues, like. It's totally come full circle. Like, all these, like, little floral, micro-floral print, everything flowy, oversized, like, sack dresses with button front. Like, Mary Jane's, uh, like, belted blazers. Like, just amazing. Amazing. I love the style of this movie. That was fun to rewatch, for sure. Bridget Fonda looks great in it. Um, her boyfriend's gross. Uh, he is kind of gross, yeah. He's like, he looks like an old man compared to her. I don't know. He's just, he's like so pale and like, I, I don't know. Um, and then like that Graham character, I really enjoyed him. Yeah, it was nice. I mean, that was a very good point that you brought up earlier, like about even though there's, it kind of plays a little bit into that trope of like the sort of like arguably queer character being sort of a psychopath, but at the same time, it does have a, a very sympathetic portrayal of um of a, of a gay character. One thing I'll say about this, like, uh, this kind of, like, queer dynamic is I don't think it's because Hetty mm. has certain lesbian tendencies that, that she seems evil. It's more that almost every character, including even the uh, fiancé, is seen as this, like, sexual threat to Ali in this film. Uh, when you look at, like, the boss or the client or whatever, like, he actually tries to rape her. And even when he, like, comes to get his revenge and finds out, like, like she's being tied up in the place like he dispatches with the crazy roommate but you don't know what he's gonna do to her like is he gonna try and rape her while she's tied up like it's unclear he's a sexual threat the boyfriend of course is like has a certain sexual power over her and like he can't be trusted and then now this like roommate who like in some ways like tries to kiss her and like way too much intimacy whereas like graham doesn't want anything from her like, mm-hmm. he's the least threatening sexually because he doesn't, like, desire her at all in any way. He's just, like, her friend. Right. Let's talk about the real sort of, uh, the real meat here. The, what I think, we came to this show for. Exactly. I think the pinnacle of the, of the uh, erotic thriller genre from this period is basically the work of Adrian Lyne. And maybe I'll just give kind of a quick introduction about uh, who this guy is. So Adrian Lyne was like part of this generation of like British filmmakers who started their career working in the TV commercial industry in uh, in the UK. He's from the same like same generation as like Tony Scott and Ridley Scott. And like Alan Parker, like all those guys were working in the in the ad industry in the UK, and they were all like kind of super stylish and like did like these like amazing commercials, like very kind of stylized commercials, fast cut editing and stuff like that, uh, that that were very influential, and then all kind of found success uh, in America later doing like feature films. Apparently, like, Adrian Lyne, and this is, like, him, like, telling the story, so who knows, but, like, apparently, like, Stanley Kubrick got in touch with him at one point because, like... Oh, after he made a TV commercial? (laughs) Yeah, he made a TV commercial where he used, like, this particular kind of, like, soft focus filter that, like, 
Stanley Kubrick was like really impressed by and he wanted to know exactly what filter he used and so like Adrian Lyon like told him or whatever and then he was like hey you should be like the second unit director on Barry Lyndon which Stanley Kubrick oh, was just about to make which is all soft God. filter whatever did he was he the no. second oh, no but that's the thing Barry like, Lyndon we have to talk about at some point yeah on but, our show one day but Adrian Lyon was like no, like I didn't I just I didn't want to do it because I thought that like Stanley Kubrick would just get like all the credit and then and so the he's fuck? like so he refused the job. Terrible and career then, decision. Well, maybe, but this, this I thought that was really interesting because of course like later on like, like he doesn't Lyon, he doesn't want to be like a DP, he wants to be a director. Yeah, but like later on he goes on to make a version of Lolita which will probably get to a little bit later in the podcast but it's interesting because like I almost feel like there's like this weird kind of like rivalry? in his mind rivalry like I mean it's not really a rivalry like, because I'm like I'm gonna be better than Kubrick <laughs> damn it but he's like yeah Kubrick offered me a job and I turned it down and then I'm gonna make a better version of Lolita than he did so I thought that was kind of neat well arguably he did yeah, I mean, I think we'll get into that in a minute, but like just about, so he started his career, I forgot the name of the movie. Foxes. Foxes, thank you. Uh, mildly successful or whatever. They're like teenage girls with Jodie Foster. Yeah. And then that, but the real movie that kind of put him on the map was Flashdance, which was a huge hit. Whatever, fuck that movie. But then after that, he made a movie called Nine and a Half Weeks, which I want to talk about a little bit because... It definitely kind of set the tone for the sort of like his interest in like erotic filmmaking, hmm. I guess you could call it. It's not quite a thriller, so I don't know if it really fits in the, in the erotic erotic thriller genre. But I think it is billed as one, but like everything is like that's the if thing. it's not a romance and it's erotic, like it's usually billed as a thriller. Yeah, so it's, and it's actually like, it's apparently based, I mean, I haven't read the book, but it's based on a, on a memoir that was apparently a lot darker than the movie ever was, where this woman, like, you know, kind of talks about, like, this relationship that lasted for nine and a half weeks, where she was, like, basically in a sadomasochistic kind of relationship, oh. and she was, like, tied to a table, like a coffee table for, like, a, a whole bunch of time or something. Wow. And then, like, the movie doesn't get that dark. But it's sort of like it's it definitely plays with this sort of idea of like a woman kind of like giving up control and sort of being seduced by this like this man's weird sexual tendencies or whatever and that having some kind of like um, psychological effect on her. Okay, so it's Kim Basinger who plays the the character of the of the woman, and um, this is also set in New York. She, she works at like an art gallery or something in New York and she's like divorced and you kind of get the feeling from the beginning that she's a little bit sexually repressed Ugh. and her roommate I think it's her roommate yeah like her roommate is like making all these like jokes about like vibrators and like is kind of like this typical like you know liberated woman or whatever yeah and then she like meets this guy who's played by uh, Mickey Rourke, Mickey Rourke. yeah both of these, like, both of these actors were kind of pretty much unknown at this point. Like, they weren't, like, big stars or anything. And uh, she meets him, like, at, like, a supermarket or, like, a, a, um, 
whatever it was she's shopping for food or whatever and they make eye contact and there's like an obvious con- connection there but they don't really talk to each other and then later they're like she- do you like melons do you like bananas <laughs> and then they like make out right yeah I don't know and I then, haven't seen this movie this is just what I imagine and then like later on like she like meets him again like in like a street market and like she's like she's like looking at all this like stuff and like she sees like this really expensive scarf that she wants and then he's like observing her from afar and then she's like oh it's 300 bucks like you know forget it forget it and then like he like goes and buys it and then like later on in the movie like gives it to her and like that really Have wins her over spoken to each no, other no exactly like no he words. just like goes and buys it and then like he like kind of like seduces her with it and then he brings her to his apartment and um is like sort of like getting kind of creepy and weird like making all these like comments about how like you know oh like you know like this is kind of dangerous like there's not like i don't have any neighbors here and you don't know what i'm gonna do to you and like just being kind of like creepy and she's like fucking like get the fuck out of there right now lady yeah and she's like i don't really like this anymore like i want to go and she leaves but then like so this is kind of, this kind of sets the tone for the relationship and it's all about this kind of like danger like I guess that's the thriller component to it is that like you don't really know what this guy is capable of and he's definitely kind of like using his like like whatever power he has over her and the movie makes it seem like she's definitely scared of him and kind of dis- like a little bit disturbed by the kind of relationship that she has with him but she's also really thrilled by it so this is like a, a recurring pattern in these movies that we were, we were watching this week yeah absolutely and it's also a very kind of like male fantasy of this like repressed female whatever kind of like thing don't going you on. think like, it could be a female fantasy too like people living in their boredom and repression though and being given an opportunity to become like that relation like part of that relationship of danger well i guess and, so like, adventure I mean, in a way the movie is made by a man so that's why i say that but like i mean but the novel is written by a woman yeah but my so. understanding is that this is very different <laughs> from the novel but i don't know but either way i mean i think i think these relationships exist because there's something to be had on either right. side right but there's it gets a lot grosser being, like, though the controller as well as the the controlly yeah but the, i mean sure i mean like sadomasochism whatever like bdsm all that shit like this is all cool like i'm into like you know i i can support oh all you're kinds into of it you're into it okay i'm okay, into it totally uh. um but the thing is like i mean the it gets really kind of creepy in this movie because like um okay first of all the infamous scene from the movie there's one particular scene where they're like in the kitchen and like it's so ridiculous like I don't even know how to describe it they basically just like they open the fridge and like he makes her like sit down in front of the fridge and he's like close your eyes and then like he just like takes like all of this like food and like dumps it on her and like makes her like taste it and stuff and she doesn't know what's coming and I guess it's about like it's supposed to be like some kind of crazy like sensory experience because she doesn't know what to expect but then like he starts like pouring all this honey on her and it look it's so gross and while I was watching it I was like I actually took like in my notes I'm like okay the the kitchen scene like is the grossest scene ever <laughs> but then later in the movie there's a scene where he like leaves her alone in his apartment and he goes off he goes out 
And then, like, she starts, like, kind of, like, snooping around and looking into his drawers and uh-huh. stuff. And then he calls her at his apartment, and he's yeah. like, you haven't been a bad girl, have you? You haven't <laughs> been snooping around, have you? Because I'm going to have to punish you. And then she's like, yes, yes, I've been snooping around. And then he comes home. And he's like, okay, I'm going to have to spank you. And then she's like, are you kidding me? And then he <laughs> basically, like, this is where he, it kind of stops being funny because he, like, he basically starts, like, raping her. And the movie, like, the way that the scene is set, like, it's very clear that it's sexual assault from the beginning. Like, she's, like, struggling to get away from him. He, like, puts her down on a table and then as the scene progresses the music gets softer and she starts to She's get like into, into it, it and, and it's yeah and but you like, know that this is a thing that happens and that this is a thing that like people are into also in a weird wait a minute like i'm saying people have weird rape fantasies rape fantasies yes when you say this is a thing that happens i'm not oh, no, sure just, this I, actually happens i mean like uh, i don't know man like People are fucked, and I think this is a movie about fucked people that you were describing. I think that's Especially with the food shit. I am a completely non-judgmental person as far as fantasies go, because I think they can get as gross and as fucked up as you want, and it's okay. Just, like, even leave putting the pickles them in a movie and yogurt out of it. It's, it's, it's hard for me, but, like, in weird, like, already established BDSM relationships, like, I'm not gonna come in and say, like, no, 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 this is the consensual part, and no, but this is where the non-kid... I don't know, man. And I think also, like, for a film about, like, weird sexual threat and danger, this is, like, probably yeah. very appropriate, you know what I mean? Uh, it's hard. I, I don't know. I mean, I... Well, I felt weird in Zandale with the weird confessional rape booth scene because she was also into it by the end so I, I don't know I... but that's the thing I think like the fact that like two of the movies that we watch kind of have a scene where a woman gets sexually assaulted and then ends up liking it already kind of points to the fact <laughs> that like out of this like random sampling of erotic thrillers we happen to pick two movies that kind of have the same trope well I didn't even there's get there's a thing that's kind of going on I, there we haven't even like... started talking about Lolita yet so don't get too upset <laughs> yeah, exactly. okay because um, uh, but the so, point the so point like, is what is your takeaway of this film my takeaway from this film is that it is somewhat messed up in its kind of like dynamics in terms of what it's trying to say whatever it is trying to say but like stylistically it's amazing like adrian lines like and i think we can put in the show notes like some like youtube links to like his like jeans commercials with which are like so like iconic and amazing there's like scenes in this movie that are basically the same as those commercials where it's just like a music montage with like all of this like backlit like people in like kind of black silhouette like having sex against like leaky pipes like just draining water on top of them and just like it's so like stylized and ridiculous and um, like it, I just really love that whole like n- like late 80s early 90s like aesthetic of like kind of yeah ridiculousness I love so it too that, it's so it's great. so over the top like it's so indulgent the 80s and 90s it's a good sort of like uh primer for like this other movie that we're going to talk about which really kind of defined the the genre of the erotic thriller which is fatal attraction oh i can't i can't wait anymore yeah let's talk about it but just before we get to it like i i just want to say that like nine and a half weeks was a complete commercial failure 
uh, in the United States. Uh, in fact, they were like, I think that the studio like kind of decided not to release it in the States at first. And then they maybe like just kind of like, like had like mild success, like in the rest of the world, like, you know, Italy and but whatever. But it's so iconic. But, like, but then it had sort of like a big kind of like uh, success in uh, home video. Oh. But the thing is, like, also, like, this really funny thing I thought was that, like, when they showed it, like, to, like, test audiences or whatever, yeah. like, something like 200 people were in the test audience and, like, all of them, like, walked out except, like, 40 people. Yeah. And out of the 40 people, like, 35 of them said that they hated it. So it was, <laughs> it was like, like, terrible. <laughs> it was not a very successful but movie. But it's, like, very uncomfortable. And also, I could see it being less successful as a theater going movie where people feel like they're being judged or it's awkward rather than, like, see it by yourself yeah because it's kind of like also if you're expecting like a movie with an actual kind of plot like it's basically it's basically just about her getting involved in all of these like crazy like sexual situations with this guy and then she breaks off the relationship when she has kind of, like she kind of realizes how destructive it is for her and she's like yeah i need she's to like, get I've out of enough. this i've had enough nine and a half weeks later goodbye and that's the end of the movie but anyway let's talk about fatal attraction because i think this is a really good movie we both enjoyed it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it the first time as a kid. I loved it in my memory and I love it today. Alright, so same director. This time the stars are Michael Douglas. Amazing. And, and even more amazing, Glenn, Glenn Close. Glenn Close and her amazing forehead. Okay, uh, for me, what I love about Glenn Close is her eyes that are like almost stuck together. In yeah. the middle. She has a weird face. She has an amazing weird face. She is so good but she has like a really creepy face um one of my first thoughts on rewatching this was like i've seen dangerous liaisons so many times like the right. american remake of les liaisons dangereuses mm -hmm. and i know that les liaisons dangereuses is a superior film but i always fucking loved glenn close in dangerous liaisons because she's such a bad bitch and like she's got such amazing control and i felt this in this film too now uh, takeaways from this movie again for like our, our listener Shelley from 1999 uh, Fatal Attraction is a true erotic thriller it is both erotic and it's thrilling um, it's the story of a high powered kind of New York lawyer he's like a publishing lawyer who uh, has a one night stand or like a two night or whatever like a little weekend fling He's a married man, but he has a fling with someone that he meets through work, and uh, it turns out to be more than he bargained for, and she becomes obsessed with him, and basically becomes his stalker, and threatens his like life and his family, and he's like kind of left powerless because of this relationship. Yeah, that's pretty much, yeah, that's a great summary. I mean, that kind of tells you everything you need to know about the plot, pretty much. What I really like about this movie, especially like the first, like, like the beginning of it is how um the relationship like between these two characters like how believable it is and how like because like what we have to say i think is that like this character like the michael douglas character is happily married like his marriage is not in any way bad yeah like, it's not like zandalay like his wife didn't stop making poetry yeah, like, like they have like they have a child. They seem to be like doing great. He loves his wife. His wife loves him. Like, like she's there's attractive. Nothing really... They still get it on. Uh, like they're yeah. thinking of buying a house in the country. 
Yeah, so this like affair in a way like kind of doesn't make sense if you think about it in those terms. Although because, that's like, like that's like how affairs are in the real world. But that's the thing. It's like, so people real. People don't always have affairs because they're unhappy. They just are tempted. Yeah, and he just meets this woman and he's like the that scene in the restaurant where they're kind of like they go to lunch together or whatever. Yeah, so it starts out like, he he meets this woman, his wife is like out of town checking out a house and uh he meets this woman through work and then there's this great scene where nobody speaks but like they're outside the office building that that they were both at together and it's raining and like his umbrella's inside out and he's a mess and he's like getting drenched in the rain and she's wearing this like fabulous like white raincoat with this fabulous like white umbrella and she's so put together and she looks at him and she's like you idiot and she like walks over to him and is like hey like share my umbrella and then they go to lunch together and they have like a great time and they chit chat yeah, but that scene, like, the the scene in the restaurant, like, I felt like it was so, like, it's such, like, a great kind of, like, character moment. Like, they, they both, like, they're being kind of, like, flirty a little bit, but, but not that much. But they're, like, hedging much. it. They're hedging and, it because they're, like, responsible adults, right? Yeah, and, like, her, like, I love the way, like, she she comes off as like totally genuine she's just like hey like you know like you seem to be into it i'm kind of into it like we'll see she, what's going she asks, on like she she asks like if he's discreet yeah 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 that's so which good. is like a great <laughs> line like it's a great classy way to do it and in a way like you almost want to like admire this alex forrest character you're like are you discreet you're like bam bitch like they actually meet at a a work party before and they see each other and they kind of flirt but like he doesn't he doesn't engage with it either right so like it takes like a second meeting and then like a happenstance and then like a little date in a bar and then finally it's like okay like i can't resist this anymore yeah. um and then they have sex so they basically go to her place and okay let's maybe let's talk a little bit about this sort of intensity of their first like sexual encounter and how sort of like because i think that's where like this is like this is where the connection with nine and a half weeks is the closest for me because it's like it's like super kind of like stylized like these people are like they're like all over each other well, and they're something... doing this weird thing with the water where yeah, like, they're okay. like... There's, there, there's something i wanted to bring up actually with you with the water and the appetites and stuff so it when <laughs> when i was uh watching this movie i took i took note of a few themes that seemed to recur to me and in this movie um, well, like when, when you were talking about nine and a half weeks, you're saying like, oh, there's this weird thing with the, the food and it's so grotesque. But like, I think it can be very easily explained by appetite. Like it's yeah. just using like substituting one form of appetite for another and showing us like how grotesque it can be when our appetites are like overboard, like our appetite for eating, it becomes grotesque when it's too much. It's excessive. Same with the sexuality. Like, she sates herself. And you you recalled to me, I don't want to get, like, too erudite, but, like, there's this great line in, um, in, in I think it's the first line of, like, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, which is a, a story all about, like, uh, romantic and sexual obsession mm -hmm. and appetites, where, like, the Count Orsino says, if music be the food of love, play on, give me surfeit of it, so the appetite sickens and so dies. So, like, he's just, like, give me so much to eat that I'm not going to have any hunger for, yeah. for this woman anymore. And I think you can kind of, like, equate that to water in this film, in Fatal Attraction, where the whole concept is, like, this sexual thirst 
that can never be quenched. Yeah, that's that's an interesting interpretation of it. The way that I see it, like, I mean, I, I think that's probably maybe what's going on to some extent. But also, like, I feel like they're just like, it's a lot of a lot of it seems to be about kind of like stimulating like all of the senses in a way. So it's like, yeah, that's it's like cool. it's like a sexual thing going on, but at the same time, there's also like. Oh, like how does like cold water feel on my lips and all of this kind of like ridiculous? Yeah, yeah. Thing, so like they go and they, they have sex and she's like, like sitting in a sink and she turns on the water and like is spreading it all over his face and shit. But as you know, water comes back lots of times in this movie, right? But in nine and a half weeks, also like there's tons of scene where people are having sex and there's like water flowing or they're like using like ice cubes and like putting it on her lips and well, then like wa- just like. It's water really is kinda... always a very sexual symbol, though. Like, water is associated well, just with like birth. just, like, wetness. Yeah, however. like, wetness is associated with intercourse. It's yeah. associated with, like, kissing. Uh, it's, it's like, the literal exchange of fluids. And there's the whole idea of birth, like, and the whole idea that, like, water is life. But in this film in particular, you look at the, the scenes in which water is used. There's, like, a point where they're, they're having sex and after they've left the kitchen, you see her kettle boiling over. So then water is used as the symbol of like what happens when it gets too hot, like when it cannot be contained. And then of course, boiling comes back in a big way in this movie. Right. So maybe you can equate like the whole like play of water with like passion and it's all fine and well when it's like a comfortable temperature for you. Yeah. But if it gets too hot, you know, like what's your threshold what's your limit of comfort right so yeah they they go back they have sex um and then it snowballs into this like she continues to to demand his time she doesn't want him to leave in the morning um there's this neat part where he gets back right after you know the whole the whole kind of like evening with alex and gets back home and he's like forgotten to walk the dog and the dog is so sad. And, like, I have a dog, and I know what that feels like. And one of the early establishing scenes in the movie is, like, he goes out to the party with his wife, and he gets home, and he's about to get to bed, and she says, aren't you forgetting something? And they look at the dog, and the dog's like, and he's like, oh, gotta walk the goddamn dog. But, like, in this case, he's just, like, forgotten about life and life's responsibilities, yeah. which is, like, another big theme in this film, the idea of responsibility or duty. Um, right. And, like, with this whole thing, like, his family's out of town he forgot about the dog like whatever sorry you pooped in the house like he's not taking care of shit um so he goes home walks the dog but then she calls again she's like i want to see you and he's like no i gotta take out the dog and she's like no no no, just come back like we'll spend the weekend together and you know spends the day with her with the dog in the park and like it's kind of the first hints that she's a bit crazy it's, I mean, similar to the way that, you know, in Single White Female, like, you kind of, like, start to realize that, like, there's, like, an unhealthy obsession going on there. You kind of realize that about the Glenn Close character, that, like, she's, you know, obviously not just, like, at first she seemed, like, so reasonable. Like, she, you know, she even says, like, we're both adults, you know, we can do this yeah. and whatever. And it seems like this really kind of reasonable thing that, like, they both know what they're getting into. And, and then she changes her mind. And then she just becomes kind of like, oh, like, you're just using me and you're just going to walk out on me and what is this? And, like, then she becomes kind of completely obsessed with him. Um, and I think, like, I I think there's there's a few different things like thematically that I kind of want to get into there but like one of them is that like from a very sort of like again like looking at this as a sort of like you know from a male perspective I think it's like 
this is sort of like a very typical nightmare scenario for like this fear of like men that like oh women can ruin my life somehow they have this kind of like crazy power over me somehow this like sexual power you know what like this character like the michael douglas character like he made a mistake like he you know he like um cheated on his wife all of a sudden it's it's almost like instead of like kind of taking responsibility for that thing that he did it's like oh like now this crazy woman is gonna like ruin my life and ruin my perfect yeah like ruin my perfect marriage and then the pregnancy comes into it and it's like yeah so then so then the glenn close character the alex first character it escalates um, you know, he goes back to see her one last time, then he's got to leave. She, like, slits her wrists. It's it's very gory, you know, like, and it forces him to stay and take care of her. Then it turns out she, she contacts him, says she's pregnant. She calls him constantly at work. Like, she really stalks him and harangues him. And, like, you do feel bad for him because initially it was understood, like, this was the arrangement too yeah. bad. And then it gets to the point where, like, she's following his family. Like, it, it really escalates where he's he's in fear for himself, for his family. But she even still seems reasonable. Like, these arguments she makes. That's the thing. Like, yeah. she's like, well, you know, you're supposed to have all the fun. And what about me? And what about my baby? Like, I can do this. I, I'm allowed to have a baby. It might yeah. be my last chance. Like, it all sounds pretty reasonable. That's the, that's the thing that's really kind of like nuanced about it in a way because it's like yeah it was understood from the beginning and if you look at it from his perspective he's totally right like you knew what you were getting into and this is this was just supposed to be a weekend thing like there was no commitment made but if you look at it from her perspective it also seems like she's right kind of like because she gets attached to like he comes for an extra date here here and there it's totally a movie about point of view which i think will come back later when when we talk about lolita but Mm -hmm. like if you were to make this movie about Alex Forrest's point of view, it would be a story of, like, loneliness and tragedy instead yeah. of, like, a story about, like, fear. Um, I think this movie is also very interesting. Like, there are some parallels with Single White Female about the idea of, like, uh, subverting kind of the usual, like, victim roles. Like, you, you would think that like in single white female the like poor little like shy heady from the country would be more of a victim than the you know the slick city going alley who's like just wants to kick her out as soon as she patches things up with her boyfriend but it's it's not that way mm-hmm. and in this case it's like you'd think that the big time lawyer would would have total control over like the assistant editor or whatever the associate editor some like junior person but that's not the case at all. So yeah, I think I think point of view is pretty huge in this. But like to return to my my previous comment about responsibility, uh, and to touch on your idea that this is a male nightmare, I don't think it's just a male nightmare about sexual power women have over men. But I think it's also a nightmare of this like like being forced to face up to like your responsibilities. Yeah. So he has this like. There's, you know, the whole affair, he's happy, but the whole, like, everything is preceded by, like, you know, he comes home and he's going to, like, get into bed with his wife, but then he has to walk the dog. Then he gets home from walking the dog and their daughter's in the bed and the wife looks at him like, oh, shucks, she just wanted to come to bed. And it's like, then she's trying to buy a house and he's, like, literally carrying, like, tons of baggage down the stairs to pack the family car so she can go away for the weekend. It's like, he's got all this baggage of family Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want to face it. And then he escapes into an affair. And then what happens? The threat of another baby, you know, of a whole other family and this whole other attachment. 
Yeah. But I, I think, like, the other thing, like, I was kind of, like, asking myself, like, are we supposed to feel sorry for the Michael Douglas character? Because, like, to some extent, like, I do feel bad for him in a way that, like, what he's going through, like, is really scary and kind of crazy. But also, like, he's such a, like, useless character in a way that, like, because he cheats on his wife for no reason. And then he's basically unable to clean up the mess that he made for himself. He's a lawyer. I keep asking myself, he's a lawyer and he's not even good. And he has to ask his lawyer friends, like, what the law is and go to the police for help. And I think, like, like spoilers for the end or whatever, which we'll have to talk about the alternate ending in a minute, but, like, what, what I thought was interesting is that, like, both him and his wife at some point in the movie tell Glenn Close, if you, like, don't leave, like, you know, if you, like, don't stay away from us, like, I'm gonna kill you. Like, when she says something that, like, about, like, oh, he I says, can call He says, I'll call your, your wife. wife, and he's I'll like, call you wife. call my he's wife, like, I'll fucking kill you. Exactly. And, and then, then and then she calls like when he finally comes clean with the wife. Okay, well, there's a pretty big scene. Yeah, that precipitates this. Uh, he finally buys his daughter the bunny she always wanted. Glenn close and comes and sees the the family in their bliss. Gets sick to her stomach, and then when they're all out, she she takes the bunny and then you get this scene where like the wife comes home and there's something boiling on the stove again this like image of like the water the passion boiling over and Mm -hmm. it becoming like lethal now uh and she opens the pot and there's like the dead bunny rabbit inside this beautiful little white innocent rabbit right um and then like of course michael douglas has to come clean because he's like, I know who did this. Right. And that's the thing. Like, you would think that, like, when he comes clean, it's like, okay, now he's, like, unburdened or whatever. Like, everything is going to be kind of okay. But it, it, it isn't. But the the interesting thing is that then he, um, he, he calls her. to Alex. Yeah, I've told my wife. Now you have nothing over me. You can't threaten this. And he puts wife his wife knows. He puts his wife on the phone. And she's like, if you ever come near my family again, I'm going to fucking kill you. And then at the end of the movie... When she like totally like invades their home and like 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 with a knife goes like totally psycho and like he tries to kill her like he like basically tries to drown her he like, drowns her in, in what in water in yeah, water that's right mm-hmm. and then he <laughs> he can't even manage that like she comes back to life somehow miraculously and then it's the wife who's like yeah like okay no I want to take it back a little bit because like earlier like you get the foreshadowing of the gun which you know that's the thing like whatever whenever you introduce a gun you know it's going to get used sometimes yeah later it's in the movie. uh it's like Chekhov Chekhov's yeah. gun yes yeah so <clears throat> earlier in the movie like you see him like open the drawer and, sh- and check like oh yeah I have my gun everything's fine if she comes you know I'll be able to use it and protect my family but then when she does come and invade his home, he's like downstairs, like boiling he's water making again, tea for making his wife. tea. So there's like that boiling element going on again, and he doesn't even hear that his wife is upstairs running a bath and like screaming for his help because as the bath runs over because the tea's boiling. Yeah, and then like, and then he comes, he eventually goes upstairs and like tries to save his wife from this like psychotic murderous woman and like tries to drown her in the bathtub and doesn't even succeed and then finally it's like no it's the wife who comes and like kills her it's pretty impotent but you know well we'll talk about the alternate ending in a bit um and kind of why it's the wife that kills her uh and why this ending is what it is but i had a few other notes too there's like Mm -hmm. a, a really interesting use of color in this film and there's a whole lot of white 
And like, especially I noticed big time in the opening scene of the movie where they're establishing kind of like the whole family dynamic, like the wife's in a white sweater, the kid's wearing like a white, like dress shirt, like he's still in white, like he's got no suit on, like the whole apartment's white. They've got this like very light blonde dog, like everything's white. There's this like sense of like purity. And then even the Alex characters, like even though she's evil is strongly associated with this white color. She's got almost white blonde hair. And I feel like there's almost this like duality of this color throughout the film, which is like white is this kind of like pure unbesmirched whatever. And then it's also this color of like, like insanity. Like she's got a kind of almost like straight jacket esque thing. She's got this like white dress on, but she cradles herself when she's feeling insecure, the, Mm. the villain. So it's like, it's this like sort of weird tension between like cleanliness and like yeah I I don't know like sanatoriums or something interesting I haven't really picked up on that I think it's like now that I think about it like there's like almost no color in these like Adrian line movies like thinking back to like nine and a half weeks and this one like it's like very very deep blacks kind of like blue hues and like white like that's kind of like the color palette um so yeah interesting and then there was also this idea of like the japanese themes in it early on they introduced kind of like they're working on this book this japanese self-help book but then of course like one of the dates he has with alex they listen to opera and they listen to like madame butterfly yeah and then one of the scenes where she's spurned is she buys two tickets but he won't go with her and they had, they had discussed Madame Butterfly and how he went as a boy with his father to the opera, but he was scared the whole time because he knew she would kill herself. Yeah. Which again, like she tries to kill herself and then maybe now is a good time to talk about the alternate ending. At the end of the movie, like as we discussed earlier, like in the, in the actual theatrical release, like basically she comes, she meaning the Glenn Close character, like invades their home and tries to, you know, kill the wife uh, but then gets kind of unsuccessfully drowned in the bathtub and then comes back to life magically and, and gets, gets shot, shot by, the wife. by the wife. That's actually and, a fake ending, though. Well, it's not a fake ending, but that was like a redo and that was based on like audience reception. Right, because I guess the original ending, which didn't make it to the theatrical cut, was that instead of all of that happening she ends up following through on her suicidal you know tendencies from earlier um because there's an earlier scene in the movie where she like slits her wrist basically and And she also uh, like she sends in this tape and everything yeah so what happens is like you know that they still do the abduction of the kid and then they still have the wife get into the car accident but instead of the woman invading the house uh the glenn close character alex forrest um it, it turns out that she's found dead and the police come and arrest the Michael Douglas character, Dan. And um, she, it, like, you, you get it in flashbacks, but it turns out that, like, Alex used the kitchen knife that had his fingerprints all over it in a struggle in her apartment. She uses this kitchen knife to kill herself, to slit her own throat and make it look like he did it. Which, like, the whole time I was like expecting in a in a weird way i'm like he's a lawyer she's gonna do this kind of weird cape fear thing where like she uses the law against him that would be like the most terrifying thing and that never really happens in the movie but in this alternate ending it does and it makes a lot of sense and it's 
it's only when the wife goes up to the attic and finds the like weird tape that Alex had sent him that she, you know, gets this like proof or evidence like, I'm going to kill myself, blah, 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 mm-hmm. which could possibly clear her husband. But it's like far less con- like conclusive than the, you know, shooting shooting Alex in the stomach sort of thing. Yeah, I think like the, the original ending, in a way, it almost like it follows through on the male nightmare thing a little bit more because it's like she like, you know, like it's like all of those tropes like, you know, like she's like ruining his marriage and she has this kid like we don't even know if it's a real pregnancy or not like all of these kind of things that like it's funny he never doubts that though he never he never goes oh bullshit yeah which i think a dude might do but anyway yeah interesting because like earlier too like you mentioned like you know where she like she like gets sick while she's like washing them and you can kind of like think that like she's just kind of disgusted by this like you know, domestic bliss that she's witnessing or whatever. But, maybe it's but also, sickness. it's more than si- like yeah, exactly, because she's pregnant. So I feel like the pregnancy is like actually genuine. Like they know. treat it like genuine. Nobody in the movie doubts it. Yeah, exactly. Nobody in the movie doubts it. Not yeah. his wife when he tells her like nothing. Um, it's kind of just accepted as fact. Like, but should... it's like used for creepy detail when she yeah. says like weird things like "part of you is growing in me," and you're like, <laughs> "Blah, barf, blah, oh, oh, yuck," you know? Yeah. All of this sort of like points to a man not having control over, you know, his life because of something that he did with the woman. Because of his own desires. Sort of he like, doesn't he doesn't have control over his desires. He doesn't yeah. have control over his life. That's so kind of the moral her, of the story. If you can't control your desire, you can't control your life. Yeah. So her sort of like committing suicide and like making it look like he murdered her in a way is sort of like her like final sort of like, you know, you. ultimate male nightmare thing is that like oh now I'm gonna get accused of a murder that I didn't commit and it it also kind of plays into this whole like he's really not guilty in a way he's just kind of like fucked up but in a a weird way it also it works on on the basis of like that character Alex Forrester's motivations but it also works in this way that like he even threatened I'm gonna fucking kill you like the night before he tried to strangle her and he couldn't and this is almost like the ultimate like you don't even have control over how I die and it's this like weird again power reversal and then finally like it it works very well with the character's motivations apparently like Glenn Close fought for like two or three weeks not to have to reshoot the ending because she didn't feel it made sense with her character and she she consulted like three or four psychiatrists while while filming this and like everyone concluded like people that suffer from these kinds of like delusions and and problems are much more likely to do self-harm Right. Then, then to like harm others and be violent, and they're much more likely to manipulate, but to like practice mm-hmm. self harm. She yeah. really fought for it, and she eventually kind of caved. Yeah. And she later, she later apologized for the performance, saying like, "Yeah, I guess extreme portrayals of like mental illness like can be destructive." Yeah, like, that's interesting because I think like yeah, definitely like in the way that, uh, like the the reshot ending like. It's sort of like thematically, it doesn't make as much sense in in that sense. But like, I feel like it's kind of more satisfying in a way. It is. Because especially because of the wife. Like, I really like the fact that it's the wife who shoots her in the in Well, the, the reason they reshot like it is because like, that phone call where the wife says, 
I'm going to kill you if you like come yeah. near my family again was the most applause that the screening audiences ever gave. Like they were excited to have a hero. Maybe because Michael Douglas is an impotent hero. Well, exactly. Maybe He's they were so like waiting useless. for the wife He's to take so charge. Useless. He basically created this whole mess and he's not able to kind of fix it. And his wife is like, fuck you. I'm just going to deal with this problem myself. And she shoots her in the chest and that's it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like, I I think it's like visually very interesting to watch. It's like some of the like kind of like scariest kind of thriller stuff of that era. Uh, I wouldn't take it away from the movie, but like having seen the alternate ending, it makes a lot more sense for the character. There's this like beautiful kind of like operatic. It's more of a tragedy. Like basically yeah. the alternate mm-hmm. the alternate yeah. ending, which is the original intended ending, makes it more of the tragedy of Alex Forrest's life. Whereas yeah. the theatrical release is more about the horror of Dan's <clears throat> life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it fits more with the point of view. Like, again, we established that, like, we never really get to see what's going on in Alex's life or her history or what, like, brought her to this point or if she's pregnant or not or, like, what she's really going through. So it's really hard to kind of live that tragedy with her, whereas you can totally live Dan's fear with him because you're seeing it all through his eyes. I think, like, ultimately, I'm sort of happy that both endings exist. Yeah, Because they're both really good. I and like it's like it. <laughs> it's like the movie is almost better as, as like, this kind of, like, you know, like, there doesn't have... Like, one ending or the other doesn't have to be the real one. It's almost like they're both kind of interesting options. And it's like, I kind of like that both are out there. Anyway, I, I would, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would recommend Fatal Attraction as, like, a nine or a nine point five, because I find like That's almost high. almost everyone is gonna get something out of this movie. It's very yeah, good. Yeah, it's a very good movie. I agree. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I think like talking about it kind of like made me appreciate it even more. Oh, so. that's so nice. So, um, I just rewatched Lolita yesterday, and it's fresh in my mind, and. This is, again, very much a movie about irreversal of expectations as to who is the victim and who is the victimizer. And um, it's also kind of a a story about um, sexual obsession, romantic obsession. And again, as with Fatal Attraction, so much hinges on point of view. I don't know, I really love this movie, like it's very serious and I, I looked at the trailer online and a lot of, like the trailer uses the words like a story about love, a story about this, a story, and people are like, love, oh, it's not love, this is terrible, and like of course, okay, Lolita is a story about a pedophile, but in a weird way, you like the whole point of the story, the whole point of why Lolita is an interesting narrative, like whether it's the like Nabokov book or and either of the movies, is that like Humbert believes he's in love with this girl, right? Yeah. And, uh, well, he is in love. I mean, I don't think it's about believing it. I think like he's he in is. love with her. Like being in love with a child is definitely like not fucked okay. Up. Like it's, it's fucked, fucked up. up. But it's like it's it doesn't mean that it's not real. Like, yeah, exactly. And this movie is like I think the strength of like Dominic Swain as this Lolita character. Like she looks very, very young and yet she's got like a kind of like knowing expression to her. Mm-hmm. She's like How old was she when she mix. filmed this movie, do you know? In in Lolita she was fifteen which is perfect and she's playing like a 12 to 14 year old or whatever right um 
the, this film is like terribly sad like again it's it's all about point of view but like you really like you root for Humbert like you can't wait you can't wait for his opportunity to like fulfill his love like it's really shot like a real romance where it's like the unrequited love but then it's requited but then there's like some impediment and you just can't wait for this artificial impediment to be removed so that like the most natural thing in the world which is for two people to love each other to be together but like you realize from a really outside perspective that like it isn't natural and like his understanding that like they both love each other equally is just like his own fiction whereas like she's she's a child and she's got no other choice Mm -hmm. really like where is she gonna go like Lolita it's interesting Lolita is flirtatious and she kind of revels in her power and the power she has over men and over Humbert in general but like you think about it like Lolita's mother dies and like her mother's married a pedophile who's like only stuck around because he wants her and now like he picks her up and he takes her from motel to motel Mm -hmm. like where's she gonna fucking go yeah, that sounds pretty <laughs> dark. I mean, I don't... I'm going to be honest, like, I don't... I said, like, 10 years ago I saw this movie. I feel like it was longer than that because, like, uh, I don't have a really clear kind of memory of it, to be honest. Like, um, well, I just kind of remember... I remember Jeremy Irons' voiceover. His voiceover is great. <laughs> and they use, they use voiceover, like, a text from the book. Yeah. And it really does help to kind of, like, support this character and his view like he he has this um this kind of form that he uses which is like ladies and gentlemen of the jury and he kind of makes his case for himself you know when he picks her up at camp and like she's been with her boyfriend charlie and he says like ladies of the jury i was not even her first lover like you know like i didn't do this and like lolita kind of knows what she's doing but like how can a child ever know but like it's like heartbreaking for her and like how she ends up but it's also heartbreaking for Humbert because like there Mm -hmm. is a real like kind of contrast drawn between him and the other pedophile in the story which is this like clear quilty guy who's just kind of like an equal opportunity like anyone young I'll abuse them I'll put them in pornography and it's like it's just very obscene Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, you, you never hear, like, Humber never talks generally about being, you know, interested in children. Like, Humbert is absolutely devoted to the idea of Lolita, and I think that's, like, what makes us able to sympathize with him, even though it's wrong. Right. It's like, I think anyone who's been, like, obsessively in love with somebody can kind of understand that, but can't understand, let's say, a tendency or a perversion. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's very sympathetic and it's shot beautifully, a lot of beautiful natural light. And Okay, well, I don't think I can really comment on this movie very much because I haven't, I don't remember it well enough to really say. Um, but I think Adrian Lyne is a very interesting director. I think, uh, I don't know if you've seen Jacob's Ladder, that's another, the other one of his movies that I've seen that I, that I really kind of enjoy. It's not erotic in any kind of way. For um, once, for but, once. Uh, yeah, but it's a maybe we can talk about that in a later podcast. It's a it's an interesting film, I think. Yeah, maybe it'll fit in somewhere like war movies or something. Well, I think we're gonna do a podcast on like Macaulay Culkin, and he has like a he has a sh- like a, <laughs> a small cameo role in this one. So maybe we'll maybe we'll squeeze that in there. 
All right. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. Try. All right. Well, anyway, th- this one's been really good. Um, who knew there was so much to talk about with the erotic thrillers? Uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, we could probably do another episode on this. Like, we haven't even touched on, like, Basic Instinct, which is, like... Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's another... My- I- also, like, I feel like Michael, Michael Douglas, Douglas has been in a lot of erotic thrillers. So, this has been an episode of No Ticket... And uh, thank you guys for listening. Yeah, and uh, we're going to leave links in the show notes to like all our accounts and stuff if you want to get in touch with us, suggest anything. Um, and we'll be back probably in two weeks. I think Michael Douglas just like he accepts these roles. He's like, oh, like gorgeous people put their butt in my face. <laughs>